Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hey everyone, it's Guy Adami here. I wanted to let you know about a live webcast Dan Nathan and I are hosting on December 8th. We'll be covering the market outlook for 2022 with three experts from FactSet. That's going to be live on Wednesday, December 8th at 12 p.m. Register right now by clicking the link in the description of this episode. We hope to see you there. All right, guys. I mean, you know what happens at 1 o'clock. Yeah. We, we do trading spaces. Sure we do. You're Guy Dami. I'm Dan Nathan. We do them every Monday and Wednesday live on Twitter Spaces at 1 o'clock. They're sponsored by CME Group. They are the sponsor of our podcast that we do with our co-host, Danny Moses, that drops every Friday. That's called On the Tape. We had a really good one this week. We recorded it yesterday. It's going to drop actually tomorrow, just so we could give you an extra day. David Rosenberg, you know him as what? Rosie guy? Rosie of Rosenberg Research, so we're kind of fired up for that. That was a really good conversation, so check that out. That'll drop tomorrow morning. Guy, what are we doing here, buddy? We, we, we've had a volatile week in not just the stock market, uh, but also the bond market as far as yields have been all over the place. Um, and the other thing about the, the stock market is kind of interesting. We're making all-time highs Monday, right? We had that bit of a reversal but we're not far from all-time highs, but there's been so much devastation under the hood. Look at names like, obviously, we've talked about Zoom. I mean, there are a laundry list of names that are just getting eviscerated, as they say. Meanwhile, to your point, the S&P is within, what, 50 handles, I guess, of the all-time high we made only seemingly a week or so ago. I, I think you're right, and Peter Bookbar is here. I look at the volatility in the bond market. We talked about it, I think, on the show, but two-year yields in a month and a half of going from basically 20, point, 20 basis points to 60 basis points. Ten-year yields have gone from, I think, 143 a couple of weeks ago, back to 155, down to 148. We traded up to, I think, 169 today. I mean, that's just – it's ridiculous if you think about it. And I know we disagree on this one, but <laughs> bond volatility, we should not be seeing moves like this in 10-year yields in the United States. Again, just my opinion now. Again – Nobody seems to care because here we are with effectively the S&P 500 unchanged, NASDAQ's climbing back. Uh, there's a bit of a reversal in yields today, which I think probably people are quasi-interested in. I'm not making a big deal out of it on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving because I'm still a month in the camp that rates in, by the end of the year are going to 2%. There you go. Well, I listen, I think Peter yesterday in his book report, we highlighted it yesterday when we did our market call video, and you guys can check it out on our Twitter, at MKT call and peter you know his comment was about the two-year yield and you know effectively without the fed doing anything the market has spoken they've raised essentially 50 basis points um here's peter i'll let him explain it because i thought that was a really nice way to do it in your morning note yesterday on the book report hey peter hey guys how are you good bud how are you thanks before for you uh, having me join opine, before you even open your mouth if you don't follow <laughs> peter bookvar if you're on this twitter spaces and you don't follow Peter Bookbar, you're doing it wrong. Anyway, back to you. Thank you, Guy. Uh, 
Well, I, I, there, there are a couple of noteworthy moments, I think, if you take a step back and, and, and look at the bond market this year. Uh, you obviously had the Pfizer news November 9th last year, and you had a very sharp increase in rates in the first quarter where the 10-year essentially doubled. Uh, the, the five-year went from 35 basis points to 90. And then people realized either the Fed's right and that inflation's transitory, they're still not going to respond to the inflation. And then you have this back off in yields. And then in mid-June, the mid-June FOMC meeting, the Fed finally acknowledged that they're talking about tapering. And that's when the curve started to flatten. Because if you look back to the action of the yield curve going back to QE1, it's paid to steepen the curve when the Fed is easing. It pays to flatten the curve when the Fed is tightening. So we got first beginnings, really, of the flattening in mid-June. And then you fast forward uh, early November, and the Fed still has transitory in their statement, and their people are realizing that they're still going to take their time in, in tapering. And then the long end finally said, you know what, I don't want to stick around for a very dovish Fed and the inflation that I see. And then all of a sudden, the Fed, within just a couple of weeks, has gone from laying out a taper path to all of a sudden now a few members talking about we may need to speed up the taper. So even today, yeah, long rates are down, but what's noteworthy is we're seeing a further flattening. In fact, the, the Fed Fund's futures today is now pricing in a 66% chance that they raise in May from 54% yesterday, and it was 50% you know, the day before that. Uh, because they assume that if the Fed is going to speed up a taper, that implies that they will then be shifting to raising interest rates thereafter. And in fact, we're pricing it now a 60% chance that they would raise three times next year. Now, I get asked all the time, when are they going to raise? When are they going to raise? I don't even, let, let's just wait to see whether they can get through the taper. I mean, this QE program is the biggest ever on an annualized basis at $1.44 trillion. They're taking that down to zero. And maybe in, instead of eight months, it's going to be a shorter period of time. So let's just see how they manage that. Let's see if they can skate through that without any market-related accidents, because there always seems to be a market-related accident around their, their tightening, whether it's the end of QE, tapering QE, or, or raising interest rates. So wait, Peter, so, so um, you know, guy, guy likes to skate. He likes the Rangers. Uh, they like their skating here. Guy, how do you think they're going to be able to skate through speeding they're up not, the taper? <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm all fired up. They're, they're absolutely not. I mean... The most disingenuous group of people has never been a sound. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's either they don't acknowledge it, which is a problem, or they don't understand it, which is even more of a problem. But one of those two are correct. And the fact that they somehow think they can control this and thread the needle is just absolutely preposterous. Peter is too smart to, you know, use the language, the hyperbole that I'm using. I'll use it for him because he knows I'm right. Well, hey, so Peter, let me let me ask you this. So we had David Rosenberg yesterday um, on the podcast. It's dropping, like I said, tomorrow morning on the tape. Um, he tweeted this a couple weeks ago, um, and I just want to read it to you, and I want to get your response here. So he said, this is on November 11th, this is David Rosenberg. So inflation is back to where it was in October 1990 and July 2008. Guess what? The economy was recession-bound both times. The Fed's next move was not exactly to raise rates, and Treasury bond yields plunged in the coming 12 months, and by a lot. Bob Farrell's rule number nine reigns. 
What, what do you make of that comment? And, and is it kind of different this time? There you go. I just set you up. But... So Ro- Ro- Rosie's a, a good friend. And to add to that, he, <laughs> he, in my note this morning on jobless claims being at the lowest level since the summer of 1969, he emailed me saying, yeah, and a recession followed soon after. And all this is, is, is very possible. But if we get an economic slowdown, it's because of the inflation that we're seeing. I mean, inflation is mud in the gears of business, not only in conducting one's business, but also from a consumer standpoint and having to absorb that inflation when you go spend on things that you need every single day. So my response to Rosie today in an email after he sent that to me, I said, yeah, it's going to be the inflation that causes the economic slowdown because number one, it's going to, it's going to slow consumer spending. It's going to now, granted, profit margins have so far absorbed this rise in prices, but uh, you know I argue that it's that that that's only sustainable for so long before consumers push push back. And then also, most very importantly here, and to you know the skating part, and that they're going to have a difficult time getting through this, is that the tightening itself itself could impact or likely will impact asset markets and. And I'll argue that you see a 25% decline in the stock market if, I'm not saying it happens, but if, you know, that has a direct negative impact on the economy if stocks don't rebound. So there's a multitude of, of ways that Rosie's right, but I don't think the path that he is talking about is the same path that I'm talking about. Rosie's been in the, de- the disinflationary, non-inflationary camp this entire time. So uh, we've been at odds from that perspective. And uh, but, yeah, we're going to get well, this kind Peter, of inflation will lead to a slowdown. How, how do you how do you, though, uh, Rosie's point that he's made is that some of the wage inflation that we've seen is really on the low end. Right. These were jobs that were kind of being automated away pre pandemic. Right. And so um, if you think that we're likely to go back to some of the trends as it relates to automation or globalization and offshoring and all this sort of stuff after the pandemic, then the likelihood that, you know, bottlenecks because of supply chains, they dissipate and some of the just the, the, the price increases that we've seen in goods based on, let's say, input costs that have gone up or let's say they all come back. Right. So let's say we get back to that disinflationary period and then we go also go back to GDP that was averaging 2.2 percent in the 10 years prior to the pandemic. You know what I'm saying? So my, my point is, is like, isn't there a scenario in the not so distant future when the pandemic is over? OK, and then we have, you know, all of those forces that were causing the Fed to worry about uh, disinflation pre pandemic to come back. So. And, and you guys, guys have heard me say this before, is that the, the whole inflation debate is really with respect to goods, because there, there's no such thing as transitory services inflation. Education, housing, medical care dominate the service component of inflation, and they are always higher. So, yeah, at some point, goods prices and, and all the upward pressures that we're seeing will moderate. It's a question of when that will happen. And a a few things that that I want to talk about that is more structural, meaning that we're not going to just quickly get back to that pre-COVID world that you you mentioned. And just a few things. You take the transportation sector, which we know is a large part of uh, these bottlenecks and a large 
reason why we're seeing price pressures everywhere since everything that is made and has to be transported at some point. So pre-COVID 2019, okay, so Trump ramps up the tariffs in middle of 2018 and into 2019, U.S. manufacturing goes into recession. A thousand trucking companies in 2019 go out of business. Then 2020, thanks to COVID, the early part, 3,000 trucking companies go out of business. So 4,000 trucking companies within two years go out of business. So going to the middle to latter part of last year, we, we took out an enormous amount of trucking capacity that's not going to get be refilled so quickly. Take the container shipping market. We've had five years of massive, massive consolidation where the top five operators have like 65% market share. So they have pricing power that they never had before and they're not going to give back so easily. Uh, take air cargo. Until business travel is back to where it was, or at least leisure travel rises to an extent to offset the decline in business, uh, air cargo is not going to get back to the capacity that we saw because a lot of passenger planes take air cargo. Then you take the whole concept of just-in-time inventory, which we're not going back to pre-COVID just-in-time inventory. It's just the world has changed. We're not going back. There's going to be a lot more just-in-case. There's going to be a lot more companies that are going to have extra stuff on the shelves. Well, if you have extra stuff on the shelves, that means you have lower inventory turns, you have higher working capital needs, probably have less free cash flow, and probably higher prices as a result. So we will moderate in the inflation numbers on the good side. There is no doubt. In fact, just on a comparison basis, after February 2020, the comparisons get tougher. So the rate of change year over year will start to slow. The question is, and to what your original point is, do we go back to that one and a half to 2% inflation range, which we saw pre-COVID, or are we going to remain above that for a longer period of time? And I argue for at least for a couple of years, we're probably going to settle out at three to 4%. Now on the wage question, because that's a huge part of this, is that wage, wage increases started with a lot of minimum wage increases over the past couple of years when it was legislated at the state level. So 2015, 2016, if you looked at the profit pie, the, the, the piece of the slice of pizza to labor was the smallest since World War II. And then that slice started to grow 2016, 2017 on the lower end because of those minimum wages. And to what Rosie's saying, yeah, that has continued where Chipotle is paying $18 an hour and Walmart and all and Amazon and Costco, they're all paying higher wages, which is then forcing all these small businesses who can't afford it to then pay up. So that's raising the bottom end. But from what I am seeing, when you look at a quit rate that is at the highest level ever, and from a lot of anecdotal stories that, that I hear and talk and, and when I talk to businesses and I listen to a lot of conference calls, it's hard to find that $150,000 person where resumes where they would be 30 to 50 for a job like that, they're like five to seven right now. And that those wages are now beginning to rise. Now, if you're a lawyer and you're in finance, yeah, well, finance is different because you're, you're subject to capital markets. But let's just say you had a, a good white collar job pre-COVID. Yeah, chances are that your wage may be not that much different. But I think that the wage increases are now broadening out. And that is leading to companies that are having to pay higher wages, not only to attract people, but they're also going to be passing it on to the rest of us because productivity is all clogged up because of all these supply problems. And I like to give the example, and I'll pass it back to you guys. 
Kimberly Clark in their last quarterly conference call, and full disclosure, I own the stock, said that we need 40 people now to do the job previously of 30. That is a reduction of productivity. Therefore, they're just raising prices to offset their higher labor costs and among other costs like packaging or materials and so on. Well, for you Johnny Mathis fans out there, I'm wearing a silly grin. And, you know, I, I know that, again, I'm speaking to an audience about three people. But since you said chances are, Peter, I figured I would chime in. I have, I have a two-part question for you. Understanding that recessions are, you know, they hurt. Aren't they a natural and normal and essential part of the business cycle? Without, without question. And, and it, 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 it cleanses. Because when you think about, and, and I'm going to go back to pre-Greenspan, and, and I'll talk about post-Greenspan. Pre-Greenspan, we would have normal economic cycles where a recession a lot of times was caused by excessive inventory uh, or you know, a pause in consumer spending, for example. And then we would sort of recalibrate and then we would start to grow again. Uh, you look at even you know, the 70s, obviously that inflation spurt, uh, the, the recession really happened in 73, 74. Through the high inflation 75 on, you didn't really have it, but it was, it was a time for the economy to recalibrate. And then you got to Greenspan where he didn't like recessions and he obviously fought them tooth and nail via his moving of the Fed funds rate where, okay, uh, I'm going to smooth out the economic cycles. But you, you start to do that, well, then you don't necessarily cleanse. And one of the consequences of cheap money is you take on more debt. So when you get downturns, uh, you don't have the same sort of debt cleansing that you would previously. And then you compound that with each subsequent cycle and you take on more debt and you have a central bank that fights any downturn more than ever before. And then you create this, this foundation where asset prices in the economy are, are essentially intertwined and that you have a central bank that just won't tolerate you know, any pause of substance whatsoever. And that leads to its own excesses and yeah. where we are today. So, Peter, let me ask you this, because, you know, the last instance that the Fed really blinked was Q4 2018. And it really didn't come, I, I guess, their their kind of their dovish kind of um, uh, pivot until the stock market was down more than 15 percent. The S&P, I think, at its at, at its lows was from its highs in October was down, what, 19 point what guy? Nine nine percent or something like that. Nineteen point nine percent. Yeah. There yes. You go. Dan. So, so so now, you know. The rate markets are moving. The Fed funds, you know, expectations for hikes have moved up. Maybe the expectations, like you said, for a taper um, have moved up here. What happens if the stock market starts going down precipitously? I mean, like at some point, you know, down five, six, seven percent. That's kind of the garden variety sort of, you know, sell off that we've seen over the last 18 months since the, the lows in 2020. But what if we do get into a situation where it's 10, 12, 13 percent? I mean, what does the Fed do? Well, that to me is going to be the most important question that we are headed for. We are going to reach that fork in the road where the S&P will be down, as you say, 15 percent. Let's just say it's even down 20, which is which is how it reacted after QE1 and QE2 ended. But inflation is still running three, four, five percent. Does the Fed try to defend the S&P 500? Or do they focus continuously raising rates because they need to tamp down the demand side 
and quell inflation. And I'll argue their initial reaction is save the S&P and, and cross their fingers that inflation moderates. The problem that they'll, eventually, that they'll get to if inflation does not moderate and they start either stop cutting rates or ramping up QE again is that when the, that's when the dollar starts to get in trouble. And then a fall in the dollar would then exacerbate the higher inflation and then probably longer term interest rates rise because they don't want the Fed easing with inflation at three, four, five percent. And then we have a real pickle. Um, so, yes, we are headed, in my opinion, to that eventual fork in the road. And we all have to ask, how's the Fed going to respond? Because this time is different in the sense that we have inflation where it's at, it's at, a, at a point where we didn't have it before you know, up until the, you know, through the night, up until the 1970s. And the, and, and I like to say that when inflation is low, central bankers have a hall pass to go anywhere they want to experiment with any tool they want to go to negative interest rates when they want to ramp up their balance sheet when they want. But when there is inflation to the point that we are at now, well above 2%, that hall pass gets taken away. Their flexibility and optionality gets taken away and their ability to pivot uh, becomes much more difficult. We should take a lot of things away from them. I mean, you know where I stand, and I'm definitely that old man yelling at clouds, whatever the hell that saying is. But I'm, I'm telling you, I mean, the fact that people bow at the altar of these Fed officials is a joke, an absolute freaking joke, because they, I mean, they're just licking their finger and putting it up in the air, and they're hoping this whole thing works out, which, by the way, it won't. Okay, so let's talk about the market because just about any metric you look at, literally, this market is as it is at extremes. What's going to be, you know, what's going to be the turning point here? I mean, it feels like we're sort of on the on the on the precipice of something. Yet the S and P is fifty handles away from an all time high, which we just made last week, Peter. Well, what what we're seeing now is we actually got a dress rehearsal in the first quarter because remember, tech had its ten percent correction when rates jumped. And, and that was sort of the first shot across the bow that, you know, valuations don't matter until they do. But what makes them matter is a rise in rates. Now we actually have the rise in rates. And, and but first quarter of 2021, remember, that rise in rates happened in spite of the Fed, not because the Fed sort of egged on a rise in rates because they talked about tapering the rate hikes. That was in spite of the Fed. Now it's happening because now we're at the taper point and the Fed's talking about up, even possibly speeding it up. And that's why we're seeing outside of the top 10 stocks that we all know about is we're seeing massive corrections of 35% up to almost 75% if you happen to own Chegg. So underneath the surface, valuations now really matter. And when you think about a stock that goes sales multiple with no change in the underlying fundamentals of that company that's a 50 percent decline in that stock just on a change in valuation it's crazy like peter today you know i'm looking at autodesk this is a 55 billion dollar market cap company it's trading down 17 percent today on a disappointing earnings uh report i'm looking at these are much smaller but in the retail space and we've seen a lot of volatility in retails 
You're looking at Nordstrom's down, what, 28%. I'm looking at Gap down 22%. I mean, over the last few weeks, we've seen some massive one-day moves like that. Even Snap going back like last month. What was that down, 25% in one it, day? It was a north of a $100 billion market cap company prior to a 25% yeah. sell-off. So I've been making the argument, Peter, that, of course, that's showing signs of something really disgusting going on under the hood. I could also make the same argument that – you know, Tesla gaining a half a trillion dollars in market cap in six weeks, Microsoft gaining a half a trillion market cap in six weeks in a straight line, NVIDIA grading, uh, gaining $300 billion in market cap. And the list goes on in those top names, right? And even Amazon and Apple, Apple's back to its old self right now. I don't know if you've, you know, you caught a glimpse of yeah, how that of stock course. trades. Those six, seven stocks are literally holding up $30 trillion or $40 trillion in market cap. It, that, to me, is as bearish as seeing companies that uh, miss and get shot. That price action on the upside on those big names is equally bearish to me. And tell me why I'm wrong at that. Well, you guys clearly remember how, and I'm not saying this is a repeat, but you guys remember what happened in the year 2000. The NASDAQ peaked out in March. The S&P actually went on to hit a new high that September. So you want to take big cap tech then. Tech started to get hammered in March 2000. And Intel, Intel hit an all-time high in August that year because people started to go into just fewer and fewer names. Sun Micro. Now, Cisco did top in, in, in March, but by September wasn't that far below that March high. So people were still migrating to the biggest names. And it wasn't until finally that, that everything gave up the goose. You take, remember, okay, GE was one of the biggest market cap stocks, obviously non-tech, but it was in the top five biggest market cap stocks back then. GE topped out in, in August, September of 2000 because people just sold a lot of things and piled into fewer and fewer names. So for those that experience that, this feels very similar in terms of how the narrowness of the market is sort of playing out. Pete, my last question to you is, again, I'm going to rail. What's that, what's that group you like, Dan, that, that rage against the machine? Isn't that like <laughs> Dave Grohl or something? Oh, or, my God. Uh, yeah, this is a um, bad joke. I think, well, listen, I don't think anything. I think factually the wealth gap in this country has never been wider. I think that's. I think we can all say that. I put it solely at, it, just at the hands of Fed policy. Am I right or am I wrong or is it somewhere in between? Well, I like to, I like to separate because people throw out inequality. We have income inequality and we have wealth inequality. To, now, a lot of them are, are, are intertwined, especially when you talk about you know, corporate America, and a lot of their income is via stock options. So there is a lot of crossover. But certainly from a, a wealth inequality standpoint, when you look at the ratio of net worth relative to disposable income, net worth being the value of houses, of, of, of stock and bond portfolios, where you know, there's only a certain percentage of the population that own most of that. And then you have the bottom where 35% or renting and you have half the country that, that don't own any stock and look at that as disposable income. Well, that gap right there tells you all you need to know about wealth inequality because that ratio today is well above where it was in 2007 and March of 2000. And you have to point your finger at, at, at the Fed and artificially low interest rates. 
Now on the income inequality, there's no doubt, as I, as I talked about, you know, it was a few years ago that the profit pie going to uh, wages relative to the total profit pie was at the short, smallest since World War II. That's now beginning to change. But it's the wealth inequality that's extraordinary. And that filters certainly into the income inequality where CEOs via stock options are, are making so much money relative to their employees. Well, I guess we can put that at the feet of the Federal Reserve when you think about what uh, many really sharp strategists like yourself, Peter, think that the Fed is solving to now, the mandate. Guy, what do you say that the Fed's dual mandate had changed? The dual mandate, clearly, and I think it's in their bylaws, is to make sure the NASDAQ and the S&P go up every day. And to that end, they've been extraordinarily successful. So I, I, I applaud them all. The brilliance. By the way, and this is just me ranting again, you know, we put so much, so much of literally the next decade, 15, 20 years is predicated on the judgment that these mostly men based on their judgment. The fact that those two geniuses that were trading stocks didn't have the good judgment to say, hey, wait a second, even though this is OK, there's nothing illegal about it. Optically, it doesn't look particularly good. The fact that they didn't have the judgment to see that and to do something about it speaks volumes. So the fact that we trust these mostly men again. It's just, it's absolute folly. And yes, I'm pissed off. Back to you, Dan. All right. Well, well, thank you, guys. I love your book. I do. Appreciate People. it. Listen, My sentiment's I'm the same. You, Have a great you holiday. Sh- you should you. read. Peter Bookbart does some of the most thoughtful work out there. I think I can I speak on behalf of Dan Nathan when I say yeah, that. No, so I'm thanks here. for joining us. Thank you. I, I love listen, you guys. Yeah, Peter Bookbart, Book Report, follow it. Uh, he is the CIO at uh, Bleakly Advisors. He's the man. He's been on the on the tape with Guy, Danny, and myself uh, in the past. Thank you for joining our spaces. Guy thanks, guys. Thanks Bye. for this Twitter spaces. Thanks to everyone out there. We want to wish you guys all a happy Thanksgiving. You will find this episode of Trading Spaces in our On The Tape podcast feed. So follow us, rate us, review us, share it. Um, also, we have the Rosie episode dropping um, tomorrow. That's a really great one, too. So that's, uh, think of this as a little bit of a companion. Guy, to you and your family, happy Thanksgiving, bud. Um, I hope Bro. you guys enjoy it. Amanda, thank you for all your help with these spaces. And uh, we'll check you guys later this week. Thanks a lot. Happy Thanksgiving. Oh, God, later. hold on. One oh, other what? thing. Hey, we have a um, tweet posted in there, our market call. We have this um, year-end uh, 2021, but key themes for 2022 posted by FactSet. It's going to be on December 8th. It's going to be live at noon. You can see the tweet that Amanda pinned in our um, in our little Twitter spaces thing right here. So click through that, register for that. That's going to be lit. We're going to have some of our friends from FactSet join us to talk about their key themes for 2022 so check that out please register um, and we're really looking forward to that so thank you guys all guy adami have a great thanksgiving bud thank you to everybody on the spaces today see ya hundo